Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I am Cristiana Figueres. And I am Isabel Cavelier. Dear friends, thank you for joining us today on this final episode of our mini-series on nature. And in this part of the story, we're going to be exploring how we might live as nature. also love to get into the inquiry of how can the unprecedented ecological and social crisis that we're living through right now lead to the foundation of a new way of relating to each other and to the rest of nature. All of us cohabitants of this planet. Thanks for being here. For those who have been or not been with us, here a quick recap. In episode one, we started telling you a story, a story about the original disconnection from nature, how we humans have evolved different origin stories and what the consequences of our supposed superiority over nature have been. That was the episode Living from Nature. In episode two, we told the next chapter of the story about how we are now beginning to live with nature, how the deep paradigms that human civilizations have adopted over time have permeated the major constructs upon which our societies operate, economics, food systems, energy systems, and design. Which leads us to the third and final chapter of the story, which is living as nature. And Isa, what beans can we spill about the third chapter right off the bat? In this exciting last episode, we are pivoting from talking about how we are starting to live with nature to glimpsing the future in the present and trying to understand how we are now living as nature. The revelation of interdependence is at the core of this glimpse into the future. Moments of crisis and solitude. This is where maybe we are finding that connection most evident. And this opens up as a new moment for looking inside ourselves and for many, for potentially new spiritual connection. We are going to be talking about wonder, about awe in the natural world, and how that shows up in our bodies and in the beautiful planet that we are inhabited. It's all about possibility, about how we are already remaking our world, about how we can already see visions from our own future emerge right now, in the present, here, with, by, and for us. Often, at moments of deep crises and loneliness, we are able to find connection again. There's a revelation of interdependence, a new moment for looking inside ourselves, and for many, even finding a new spiritual connection. So as a prologue to our story of living as nature, we are going to take a quick look at the 2020 pandemic. 
This globally shared experience is a pretty strong example of how crises and disasters can truly inspire shifts in perspective. It presented itself and we lived through it basically as a tale of two realities. There was incredible isolation, disconnection, fear, grief, anxiety, mental health issues, but also at the same time, wow, what a moment to pause. I call, I think of the pandemic as the great pause. What a moment to pause and take time for art, for cooking, for baking, for reading, for writing. More importantly, taking time for ourselves and for each other, for reaching out to those in need, even if we hadn't met them before. Two completely different experiences living side by side. During the pandemic, I really had to slow down. And there is something in me that still has some nostalgic feelings for that moment. Cristiana, what I feel this pandemic has in it, this great pause, as you're calling it, is that it holds with it big paradoxes that are quite important for what we are talking about today. We had never been more globalized in the history of humankind, and we had never been feeling so isolated from each other. And the second big paradox is that we could see and we could feel in our bodies that we had never experienced being so separated, more isolated, more lonely. And at the same time, our interdependence with the rest of the living world and not just the rest of the human world, but in general, the rest of our planet had never been so needed, so important, so obvious, so explicit materially. As we go into the lessons of the pandemic, we should not forget that so many people lost loved ones, that there was such pain in the pandemic, um, such mental health issues that really are even still with us, especially in children and teenagers who felt even more isolated on the whole than adults. So what a moment of paradox in which there was excruciating human pain and wisdom that was born out of the excruciating pain of the pandemic. And what is fascinating to me, Isa, is that what links those two experiences of both expansiveness and isolation of growth and pain is the fact that it was a huge slowdown moment for the world. And we spoke about this with Ashi Bastida, the young indigenous Otomi Toltec climate justice activist from Mexico and co-founder of the ReEarth Initiative. I think the biggest thing that the pandemic did for everybody was slow down the world. And in a way, our economic system is about how fast you can do things, how efficient can things be, how fast you can make profit, how fast can you heat up your food? Like, why do we have a microwave and it takes all of these metals to make and it takes so much work to transport it and distribute it so we can heat up our food in 30 seconds instead of 10 minutes? And so we have given up on letting things take their time and nature takes her time, always. A tree cannot go, grow faster than what a tree is supposed to grow. 
and the currents are not going to go faster than when they're supposed to go, except when we come and disrupt that cycle because we want things to go faster. I think the pandemic showed us we have to give nature time to heal, ourselves time to heal, and as a whole, slow down a bit more. We should not forget that lesson, to slow down, to give time, that nature needs time to heal, that we need to heal. I love, uh, you know, how she reminds us that we need to bring our pace down to a speed which allows for emergence and wisdom to show itself instead of filling up our days with our endless to-do list, me being the first culprit of that, how important it is to make space intentionally now to breathe, to connect, to heal. How important that is. If anything, that is the enduring lesson of the pandemic. So we spoke to Janine Benius. She's a biologist and author and the co-founder of Biomimicry 3.8 about another way we can be open to pivoting our perspectives in regards to the COVID pandemic. It's such a teachable moment for biomimicry, the pandemic, because, you know, we're still looking at how that might have spilled over from animal populations. But bats, it may have been that bats right, were the ones who shed the virus and, and we got it from bats. Our immediate knee-jerk reaction back to vulnerability is let's kill bats. But the thing is that bats have been living with COVID, with coronaviruses for 40 million years. They are actually who we should be going to, studying and saying, how is it that your immune system doesn't blow up in a cytokine storm? And they don't. And so they're Fantastic question. It hit me like a two by four because in the pandemic, I came here to where I live now, which is right in front of the Pacific coast, North Pacific coast of Costa Rica, into a home that had been abandoned for 10 years. And one of the first things that I noticed when I started living here during the pandemic is that the whole front of the house was occupied by bats. And as Janine was talking about this, I did such a, you know, note to self moment because I remembered that my reaction was, where can I put lights so that the bats are less incentivized to be flying around the house every single night? And I did not think about what can we learn from them? We fall into this deeply rooted, habitual thinking of, quote unquote, how do I get rid of nature? It's in my way. I don't want bats here. How do I, you know, what, what lights and what noises and what, what uh, can I do to entice the bats to go somewhere else? And now post factum, what an interesting intersection for me that the place that I came to during the pandemic had been the home of bats. And that my reaction was, how do I entice them to a different home? So 
a huge learning for me. Me who thinks that I am so open to nature, why did I think that the red macaws flying over are okay, but the bats are not? Very interesting. And to me, the biggest learning in general with this pandemic, the first one, slow down, take time, listen. The second one would be don't act out of fear. You know, another, another point, well, we, I, I think we will spend years deriving lessons from the, um, from the pandemic. But, but another point that I thought was so interesting is that while I was hiding out here in my, in, in, in my waltz with the bats, I, I did, and I'm sure you did also, Isa, read of so many places where nature returned because we removed the pressure on nature and all of a sudden there were more animals in cities and there were more flowers in gardens and how nature showed its resilience. And I thought that was such an interesting contrast because nature showed its strength. The fact that as soon as we remove our pressure from nature, it can thrive in ways that we never would have imagined. And that all of that thriving of the, the rest of nature occurred during the time in which we humans were experiencing our incredibly deep vulnerability. Dr. Lila June Johnston, who we interviewed about this, she's an indigenous community organizer and musician. And she talks so beautifully about how we humans gravitated back to nature in many different ways. A lot of my people came back home and a lot of my people started planting their fields again and planting corn and just seeing how fragile this system is, right? Like one little virus and like everything shutting down our economy nearly broke to pieces certain things were not stocked we have shortages of all these foods and we just realized how fragile this system is and i think people were moving back to the land to not only have a have more self-sufficiency and independence but to have a deeper connection with that um but i Feeling it in our bones, Christiana, really, this climax of separation that was also this drive for reconnection. We can see that the pain, the trauma, the separation that the pandemic produced also had a positive outcome in terms of revealing our interconnectedness. Pain can be the chrysalis of growth, and grief can be the compost from which new perceptions of reality begin to emerge. We are in a world that is on fire. But what if our instinct was not to look away, to actually allowing ourselves to feel that pain as a first step to the healing process, as a first step of that composting that you spoke about, Christiana? It's like the ultimate paradox and at the same time, the most obvious of natural cycles. It's like that deep pain cracking up to the light. Bayo Akomolafe speaks very beautifully about this. He's a Nigerian Yoruba author. 
He's a speaker, a professor, and a poet. So we asked Bayo how he felt pain could be a means of transformation. I have this saying that comes from a response to the idea that love is a bridge. Love isn't a bridge because to presuppose that love is a bridge is to fall into the dynamic that identifies us as already known. You understand what I mean by that? That to say love is a bridge means that we are individuals and then there is a bridge and then we get connected and we we're in love and that doesn't quite pan out for me. Um, <laughs> I think that love is a hyphen and a hyphen doesn't connect two separate entities. A, a hyphen presumes that they were never disconnected in the first place. It's from that universe of considerations that I would suggest that pain really does behave like a reminder. It's an alchemy, a welcome, right? It's, it's like the chemical processes that allow us to see that the thresholds that we've accepted as firm, concrete, eternal, lasting walls are thresholds, not final destinations. And sometimes it takes the language and the grammar of pain for our bodies to be reintroduced to, e to the ecologies that they're dependent on. And if this feels potent to say because of the ways we speak about trauma. Um, in my culture, trauma is not a, is not the final bus stop, it's a portal. It's, a, it's an Einstein-Rosenbridge, yeah. except I wouldn't use bridge, but it's a portal to elsewheres. So chrysalis, imaginal cells, caterpillars becoming butterflies, yes. I think pain is necessary as part of transformation. The transmutation of pain into love is such a hopeful and inspiring experience, I would say. And for me, it feels truly like a moment of reawakening. This is the essence of nature, and this is the place where all flourishing actually happens. So, Christiana, how can we nurture this feeling, this awareness, but also this true experience of interconnection, of interbeing with the rest of nature, with what some call the river of life or the web of life? And here we are now going to discuss some of the ways in which this awareness of our connectedness to the rest of nature is already occurring. Some people around the world from many different cultures are already living. You could say more in balance with the natural world, but you could also say truly as nature. And this is something that you um, talk a lot about, Christiana, and that, that I um, have witnessed in our own shared experiences uh, recently, but also that I know you have been practicing for a very long time through engaged Buddhism. Isn't that right? Yeah, that is that is so true. I I happened because the universe wanted it to be so. I happened to discover the teachings of Buddhism, very specifically the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Vietnamese Zen master and teacher who passed on uh, a few years ago. 
Um, but I happened to discover his teachings in 2013 when I myself was deep, deep, deep in pain. When you're in the grips of pain and at the bottom of a very dark hole, very cold hole where you feel completely on your own, you know, in the grips of this pain and suffering, we do have to make a choice and or 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 not uh but the only way out of it is to make a choice and what what i have noticed isa is that so often the choices that we make are especially in you know in in the face of threat or pain or suffering the choices that we make have been basically three choices that we humans have honed over thousands of years which is flight we choose to ignore what's going on and cover it up it's not really happening let me you know move to the next piece of news or whatever so you know just distract ourselves evasion or fight put on our boxing gloves and blame someone else someone else is definitely responsible for my pain whoever that is or of course freeze which is feeling completely helpless and hopeless in our grief. And I think those three also are very frequent reactions to the threat of climate change and you and I Isabel we have we have been there and none of this is helpful because it just keeps us where we are. And so the question that is posed by well certainly by Buddhism but by most contemplative practices is is there a middle way? Is there a different way to deal with this pain and this suffering? And it is, of course, to acknowledge and embrace the pain and the suffering and see it as the fertilizer, if you will, as the fertile ground for a flourishing. In the words of Tignatan who who became my teacher, no mud no lotus because the lotus blooms only in stagnant waters where there is a lot of mud mm -hmm. and otherwise it can't grow it can't bloom and so if we don't have mud and please anybody who doesn't have mud in your life please raise your hand i don't see any hands being raised <laughs> um if we don't have mud in our lives there's very little possibility that we're going to be able to see um any lotus blooming and so that relationship between the mud and the lotus between the suffering and yeah. the growth between the pain and the and and the wisdom and the joy that actually comes from it is actually an intentional choice isa and it is a that choice. for me i think was was the biggest learning out of my pain and my suffering that i had put myself into because i realized that this is my responsibility i have to make a choice mm. and those are my choices and obviously there's only one that is going to restore my joy in life and my agency in life and so thank the teachings i made the right choice but let's admit it's not easy to make that choice not at all not at all in order to transcend separation we really need to be in that pain and is look at that fear in the eye and go through it and and i think that is your example and your 
Christiana, your experience, and thank you very much for that vulnerability that you are sharing. You have really put it very beautifully. One of the people that I have heard speak most eloquently about this is one of the monastic sisters from uh, the Plum Village community, Sister True Dedication. She's a Zen Buddhist monastic teacher and spiritual leader, but she actually worked as a journalist for the BBC News in London before she became a, uh, a Buddhist nun. And hence she brings a beautiful bridging capacity between the contemplative wisdom and understanding and what we might irresponsibly call the outside world, the life, the political uh, forces at work. And uh, we interviewed her about her learnings as she has become a Zen Buddhist nun. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Sister True Dedication, and I am a Dharma teacher in Tichnyat Han's Plum Village tradition. So for us, uh, we would say that as human beings, as living beings, we kind of inter-are, inter-are with the whole natural world. And there's a wonderful term that's at the kind of heart of Buddhism, which is interdependent co-arising, that the wonders of life have manifested and evolve over time. And they're in this kind of constant state of kind of becoming and re-manifestation and evolving. And so for us, we don't have the kind of dualism maybe between a creator and a creation, but nature reveals itself. So in some ways, we're quite close actually to kind of Spinoza and some other Christian theorists who see that uh, the spirit is um, imminent, is um, there in all of life. So that is our Buddhist understanding of life and its complexity. And Thay, Thich Nhat Hanh, our teacher, he once said, uh, we can reduce this to five very simple words. This is because that is. This is because that is. So everything has a kind of intercausality. Humans can manifest because of an unlimited amount of other conditions. And how we are, whether our actions now are causing harm or goodness, uh, whether we are evolving in a certain direction or another direction, there's a kind of infinite web of causality that connects us to the living world. And this may seem, on the one hand, it may suddenly seem if there's infinite conditions, oh my goodness, we don't have much agency. But actually, because of the interbeing, that in the Buddhist teaching is the source of all possible um, agency, because we're so connected to the natural world, because we are a part of it, because we have emerged from it, because we're an expression of it, then everything we do can already heal and transform the natural world. And the idea is that... You know, this concept of interbeing is so central, not just to all Buddhist teachings, but um, but honestly, to understand that there is no separation between us and the rest of nature. And so the concept of interbeing is, is very helpful. And I would say something that we really have to dig into because it's not an easy concept to, yes, to understand intellectually, yes, but to live out of. That is the challenge. How do we live out of the reality of interbeing? That's right. 
and how that new mindset, if one chooses to adopt that new mindset and to live from it, how would that then have a real impact in collective change in the world is the big question. And Sister True speaks about this very beautifully as well. The Buddhist vision of things is that the mind needs some training in order to see things clearly. When we're able to cultivate the concentration on interbeing, we're able to remove this veil of ignorance and we start to see that we and the natural world are deeply interconnected. We see the earth almost as an extension of our own body. Harming the body of the earth is harming ourselves. Flourishing of the earth is is a necessary uh, condition for the flourishing of humans. And so with the spiritual practice and the kind of practices we cultivate um, in mindfulness, meditation and, and Buddhism in general, we're finding, if you like, fulfillment in simplicity and simple living and the wonders of the present moment. You don't need to have a lot. You don't need to extract a lot. You don't need to um, produce and generate a lot. We don't need that kind of roller coaster economic growth for humans to be happy. We're so often, I think, caught in the idea that like climate change is a human problem. And therefore, as humans, we have to kind of solve it somehow separately from everything else. But Earth is there ready to help us solve it. You know, she's there to be a refresher for our spirit, for our mind, allowing ourselves to yeah, listen to the silence of the Earth the wonders of the earth, that would be a part of our kind of spiritual resource, our spiritual energy to give us the strength to transform the difficult situation we find ourselves in. And that is why the insights of interbeing, interdependence across space and time become so important. Each one of us has our role to play. Any one action now has ripples beyond our imagining. And that interdependence across time, that mention of it, I find it so fascinating. It's also where you can start to understand really, truly, materially that we have actually always been nature. We we haven't been anything else than nature. Bio does a very good synthesis of this. Um, I'm trying to repeat the words of Donna Haraway when she says nature is a denaturing of itself. Right. Nature denatures itself. There isn't a stable ground to stand on. Even when we speak about it poetically, right, like saying, hey, let's get back to nature. Then where are you leaving from? (laughs) Right. There isn't some outside of nature that you're standing on that you want to get back to nature. We have always been connected to nature. I mean, it will be interdependence and connectedness through time and space. We are representatives of a whole web of life that is entangled with us through space and time. And that each of our actions, just like Sister True was telling us, has impacts in the chain of causality. And that is a pretty powerful place for agency. That is exactly what Lila June is telling us and is sharing with us from her own community and her own belief system of how we are actually connected to the entire river of life through and with our ancestry and linked through and with prayer 
And I find that that's a very practical thing to do. Let's listen to Lila. We're not living in simply a material world. We are porous beings, energetically porous. There are things moving in us, moving out of us, moving through us at all times. Some cultures call them ancestors. Some cultures call them enlightened masters. Some cultures call them the grandmothers and the grandfathers. But these are the beings that walk with us. And each and every one of us has a circle of those beings that that guides us. And each and every one of us is never, ever, ever alone. We are not designed just to live alone in this body. We're actually designed to merge with the ancestors. And that's the word uh, genius. Genius comes from the root word genie, which means spirit. So the genius was someone, not someone who was so special, but rather someone who could get out of the way enough for the spirit to move through them. When we understand we're spiritual beings living in a spiritual world, everything makes much more sense. And we start to see why, even though we have these PhDs and these rocket scientists and these, you know, all these gadgets that we're still unhappy. We still have poverty. We still have wealth disparity. We still have war. We still have children being blown up by bombs. Because apparently, if you just understand the physical, just understand the mechanics of stuff, that that's apparently not enough to create a civilized, refined, uh, evolved society. You have to know the spiritual dimension. You have to know how to operate within it. And the way to operate within it, from what I've been taught, is to be a being of love as much as you possibly can. And that helps you tap into that force, that Holy Spirit, or that chi, or that mana, or prana, or whatever it is your culture calls it, that good, good energy, that will help you connect to that. And then you'll walk with a whole legion of ancestors with you, and you'll never be alone, and you'll be a regenerative, giving being. I find it quite heartening, actually, that we have so much more company and so much more wisdom that we can inherit if we choose to be attentive to it. In the climate space, we usually think about regeneration only of, you know, regenerating the depleted soils and regenerating the forests. And actually, regenerating is so much more than that. What we think think from simply a very narrow rationale perspective, uh, reasoning perspective falls very, very short as being the only mode of perception. So this, this is an invitation to not, not to deny reason and rationality, but to complement it with other modes of perception and other lenses for reality. And it's also an invitation to choose Christiana, once again, what it is that you let in and what it is that you don't nurture in yourself. It's this capacity that we have to choose to invoke what we wish for ourselves and for the rest, conscious of the impact that we have in all of that river that we are interconnected with, um, and conscious that even in our thought and in our invocations, we are nurturing a particular paradigm or another. So, Isa, isn't it true that many religious and spiritual traditions emphasize the importance of living in harmony with nature and 
actively and intentionally recognizing our interconnectedness with all life. By nurturing our spiritual connection to nature, we can develop a sense of reverence, of awe for everything that surrounds us. And that will lead us to more compassionate and responsible choices in our life. That's right. We have a human capacity of actually sensing in our bodies the feeling of awe for the world that surrounds us. Mm. Yeah, I love that word, awe, the sense of awe. At least in part, it is a recognition that there is so much out there to which we are interlinked, with which we interbe and inter-are. And, um, and that in as much as we open ourselves to that, we do, we do fall into awe. You know, I almost feel we fall on our knees in awe because we give in to the humility of understanding that we're a little speck and that we're not at the center of the universe. It is in awe, in humility, and at least for me, it is in the deepest gratitude. It's this profound feeling of the, the, the grace of being alive. How probable was it that you, you, after all of those millennia, actually are alive, the daughter or the son of all of those who survived all the way from the bacteria, the first exactly. bacteria <laughs> that metabolized, <laughs> you know, yeah. each other to make oxygen, geological time, all the way down to you. You are the product of all of those who survived. What a, what a depth and what, a what grace it is. What a miracle it is to be alive. Yes. Yeah, to, to think that we are the direct descendants of the spark of photosynthesis. Because exactly. that was a spark, an <laughs> original spark. That was, And yes. here we are. Whoa. <laughs> Still eating photosynthesis. Still though, eating right? photosynthesis. Still, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Krista Tippett speaks about awe in her own experience. And Krista is a journalist, an author, an entrepreneur, an academic In 2014, President Obama awarded Krista the National Humanities Medal at the White House for, quote, thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence. On air and in print, Miss Tippett avoids easy answers, embracing complexity and inviting people of every background to join her in conversation about faith, ethics and moral wisdom, end quote. What a beautiful description of who Krista is. Christiana, let's listen from Krista. There are so many, so many, so many beautiful places on this planet Earth. And I kept having this experience of just standing there, taking it in and, and just wondering how it is that we humans did not see what was around us and just be in a state of wondering and adoring and act accordingly. I mean, it is such a strange thing about human beings 
that some of the things that we most need to learn to grow wise and to grow up are things that we've known forever in our bodies, but then we finally know with consciousness for the first time. There are all kinds of things we're coming to understand about how our brains work and how our bodies work that help explain how these perceptions have helped us navigate the complexity of reality and move through the world and feel safe. But our ability to perceive the fullness of reality is limited as much as it is it is enabled, it is limited by our senses and, and by our brains that are working so hard to keep us safe. And one of the most beautiful things about being alive now is how science is becoming a companion for a greater consciousness, a, a consciousness that both brings us forward and brings us back, right? Like again, plants us in the reality that we've become alienated from. And yes, it's absolutely, you know, it's Suzanne Samard's work on the life, you know, the underground life of a forest that is really a, a template for uh, community, for vitality, and so much else kind of in that sphere of understanding the natural world. I feel that there's a complementarity emerging between how we're learning to just see the sentience of other living beings, of, of plants and animals. Also how we're understanding ourselves. For example, Dacher Keltner, who's working with the science of awe. This is not the kind of thing that science, Western science has taken seriously. But to understand the experience of awe as something that actually is one of the most life-giving experiences that we have, that it, it has all these physical, immunological, um, nervous system effects on us. And, and what feels so important in the context of this conversation we're having is, of course, the experience that, that so many of us just organically have in the natural world is that awe experience. You know, I so love Christer's just masterful use of words and concepts. The phrase, the science of awe. She has such a capacity to put very complex realities into simple terms and to point out the fact that science, especially neuroscience, is now confirming that our intentional and active interrelationship and intercommunication with nature has an effect on our bodies and on our spirits and on our souls. We shouldn't be surprised that there is a rising science of all. That's right. It is also a confirmation that the experience of awe is an embodied one, is a material one, right? But it comes through our senses. And it comes that time when you really move through that threshold of mystery. You go beyond your rational capacity to explain, but you are actually befriending your body's ability to sense. And awe actually often happens in unusual places and moments or something that I love how Bayo speaks about thin places or edges. Let's hear from him again. So by edge, I mean 
the worldly corporeal material semiotic practices that um, interactively create boundaries between worlds, but are but still remain open to the interruption, to the intervention, and to the agency of the without, right? That this idea of a thin place is where the sacred or the spiritual in, the, in that conceptualization as something beyond the ordinary leans in so close on the ordinary that it almost pierces the membrane of the ordinary, right? You can sense it, a thin place, right? You may, maybe you're jogging around your neighborhood in the morning and you catch a glimpse of the of sunrise, right? You catch a glimpse of sunrise and you're immediately overwhelmed with something that is not available for modern rationalities in that moment. You can sense something. So that's a thin place. Once we open ourselves to listen and to feel that there are no strict boundaries, there are no uninterrupted lines between my skin and the outer world, right? It's a porosity that we actually live in. That's when then we find awe. And Krista has yet again a beautiful term for this. She calls it collective effervescence. Let's listen to how she uses that term. You know, there's language of collective effervescence that we can also literally that our bodies sync up in certain situations, that we have a physical experience that means our hearts are beating at the same time and our breath is in unison when we put ourselves in the presence of awe. So one of the main sources of awe that these scientists found all over the world in many countries, many languages, making sure that they weren't just studying a certain kind of person was uh, how moved and elevated we are by what they call moral beauty, which is also the ordinary experience we human beings have of the beauty of other human beings, of the generosity of other lives, of the capacity we have, although it doesn't make the news, to rise to our better selves, to learn. And us internalizing not just what goes wrong, which is true, but the fuller story of our capacities, of, of what we are learning, of how we are growing, that is such a critical muscle for us to face our ecological present and future, right? That's a critical muscle for us to um, have the kind of the muscular hope that we need and the imagination that is required to really bring about a different world. And nothing less is, is called for. I love it how Krista speaks that we are not only in astonishment of the rest of nature, but of each other. It's just so touching and so profound that humanity is also this innate, profound beauty, moral beauty, as Krista calls it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Moral beauty. But here is where that wisdom of that, you know, age old uh, saying goes. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, and moral beauty is also in the eyes of the beholder. We will not be able to see moral beauty in ourselves or in the rest of nature if we do not choose to focus on that. We will see everything but moral beauty. If, however, we put on our glasses in search of moral beauty, we will see it 
everywhere and anywhere, but it has to be a choice. So now, friends, in this final episode, we set out an inquiry into how our narratives can be the drivers of a new experience of our reality. Because you see, the stories we tell ourselves as individuals and for sure as a species determine our self-identity in this world. They determine our emotions, our thoughts, our actions, and hence the impact that we have on the world. As Krista would say, the stories that we've been told and handed down have a huge influence on our capacity to imagine. They're the basis of our imagination. Now we are understanding that we have as advanced capacity to understand and perceive the world through many other modes of perception, as well as science. And all of that starts with the stories that we tell ourselves. They're the backbone of our belief systems and therefore of our, the material systems that we create and the ways we view ourselves in the environment. Those stories um, and narratives that we've been talking about now for three episodes, it isn't amazing how they create the worlds that we then inhabit. It's not the other way around. We tell the story. We invent the stories. We imagine the stories. We tell them from generation to generation, and then that creates the worlds that we inhabit. And it's not easy to challenge that construct. The trick, Christiana, is not to forget that what seems to be so established in reality is susceptible to change, that reality is ever-changing, and that stories and words that creates the stories are powerful, very powerful, in the words of Krista. I think that words are some of the most powerful tools that we possess, and they are so ordinary we we live with them we work with them they they flow out of us all day long and we 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 often are unaware of how much they work in the world we know that words can be weapons and with my words i can make someone else's day i can break someone else's day and one of my strongest health convictions is you know the the ancient rabbi said words make worlds and that is my observation Right. So that's why it really matters when we when we use language of domination and of subduing that language shaped our relationship with the world of which we were part. And I carry that also as a source of of hope. Right. I really think that every time we we work with our words and take care with our words, you know, we can literally bring new realities into being. That is one way to start. How have we structured our world around hierarchy and domination and the myth of a strategic plan and of solutions? And when, you know, if you think about just the difference between um, entanglement or mergers, <laughs> right? So 
I just think I, like these are words. They are words that don't just describe the truth about reality that we haven't factored into how we've lived. This kind of language will also shape imagination and imagination shapes what we bring into being or what we fail to bring into being. Krista reminds me of Sylvia Winter, Christiana. She's a Jamaican philosopher. And she writes, quote, that which we have made, we can unmake. Then, consciously now, remake. Yes! I yes! yes. <laughs> it's beautiful. I owe this quote to Arturo Escobar, who speaks very powerfully about this. All of our lives we have been trapped in these toxic loops of being competitive individuals who exist in capitalist societies to maximize our benefit, to see others as competitors, if not enemies, to feel superior to others, and so forth. So how do we get out of that drag race? How do we get out of those toxic loops of existence, as, as we may call them? And it's not easy But more and more people are doing it today. That's one of the great changes I think we can see today. I mean, on the one hand, we see that the world at the top is becoming increasingly callous and increasingly unable to see the importance of the moment today as a turning point for humanity and for the planet. But on the other hand, on the ground, at the meso level, in between the grassroots and circles of power, then we find all this proliferation of ideas and new practices and ways of doing and thinking and being that are different and that do not conform to the script of competition and aggression and individualism, but that are aiming to move away from that into a whole series of new narratives, regeneration and care, relationality, interdependence, restoration, well-being, more holistic, that are conscious of that we humans, we live in a living cosmos and so forth. We know that narrative of a single enemy doesn't work anymore. Moreover, I think that there is a greater recognition today that we need what we can call a politics without enemies. Politics, because if we really acknowledge the radical interdependence of everything that exists, we are all interconnected, we're all interdependent. And even those who do awful things as are part of the world and as part of, are part of us. So how do we deal with that without leaving off the hook those who are responsible for the mess, without leaving them off the hook, but at the same time advancing the agendas and the alternatives that we wish to advance? Isa, so he talks about advancing the agendas and the alternatives that we wish to advance, which of course brings me to Mundo Comun, because you and your colleagues there at Mundo Comun are really at the forefront of breaking new ground in agendas and alternative ways of being and doing also, but mostly being. Why don't you share with us a little bit about your new stories, your new narratives, your vision for a new way of being? That's right, Cristiana. Thank you for that question. The moment of crisis and the Galilean moment that we are living through right now is all about how we can build again a common world, a world that we share. 
beyond just shared among humans, but truly shared in a planetary way, in an expansive way. That's why Mundo Comun's whole point is to nurture a culture that is rooted in that acknowledgement of radical interdependence and that transmutes the paradigm of separation into a paradigm of care, not extraction, but care. So we are working currently to create, for example, a Spanish version of this miniseries that will Yay, be coming out bravo, bravo, very soon. Buenísimo, buenísimo. Para todos los hispanohablantes <laughs> that are listeners of Outrage and Optimism, it's going to come out um, this year, later on in the summer. And that's but one of our streams of work is the new stories. How can we tell the stories in our own languages and we contribute to this performative act of creating the world through the stories we tell. That's one part of Mundo Común. And through living the experience of being in a culture of care and interdependence. And we have wisdom are the version to become regenerative beings as exp in, in an experiential way. So that is Mundo Común. It has both the experience and the story. And we are working from Colombia, but with and for the entire entanglement that we are. And that performative act really is what Mundo Común is. And is what we are doing right now, Cristiana. We are performing the creation of the new world. We are bringing the future into the present. Well, and it is also, Isa, with that explanation of Mundo Común, it is also now, hopefully, if not before, completely evident to all listeners why I asked you to co-host this mini-series with me, because you and your colleagues are the embodiment of what we have been uh, trying to communicate here over three um, episodes. Um, and you are not just communicating it and discovering it, you are embodying it. And hence, that was the great discovery that I made a long time ago when as I was sitting next to you and I went, whoa, this woman already knows. She's already there. <laughs> and that is why, Cristiana, we are profoundly and humbly grateful and very joyful to receive this invitation and to invite you back to do this. En español. En español. El idioma de los dioses. Muy sí, bien. señora. Muy bien. Muy Exactamente. Bien. No, for sure, for sure. So let's perform this act of bringing the future into the present. That is how there is no other way to close our miniseries than to bring to our listeners visions from that future that we are already living, starting to sprout now. And here are some of the voices that are already pulling the future into the present. What I feel about the current moment that is hopeful, I have the feeling that more and more people are experiencing a sense of a historical mission, the historical mission of saving the planet, if you wish, saving the human, and in more complex versions, reconstituting the way of life, healing the way of life, rethinking the human, remaking the human, finding new ways of dwelling on the earth. It's not, it's not that easy 
to conceive of the world in terms of individuals acting upon it. Instead, we are networks. We are rhizomatic networks, meaning I am connected with technology, with furniture, with texture, and I'm hybridized in that way to act within the world. So it's not me acting, it is the assemblage that acts. When the assemblage comes together, then things erupt, right? It's, it's this idea that maybe, maybe, just maybe, we are entangled with ecologies. We're entangled with worlds. Maybe we are not as isolated or as dissociated as we think. It's all about how we are relating to each other and treating life or all living beings with respect and understanding of how the interconnectivity is what keeps us going and alive. It's to recognize that we are dependent upon and part of the living world and therefore we use her materials with respect, with uh, gratitude, we use them effectively, we use them sufficiently, and we return them and restore them so that we're, we're part of creating conditions conducive to life. I look and I think, I hope we don't turn away from nature again. Because I think we are turning towards, as you said, I think we are. And we have to remember this time to not turn away out of fear but rather to turn towards with the full understanding that we are nature. And that's why it makes sense <laughs> to emulate the rest of the natural world. We are at a crossroads. One direction is the path of fear and destruction. The other path is the path of love and creativity. Both paths lead to where we are going but we're the ones that choose how we're gonna get there. In Yoruba, the word for human is chosen one. It translates to chosen one, which is a West African indigenous language. And they say, we're not chosen to be the best and the most mighty. We were chosen by the creator to take care of the earth. That is our true purpose. How much do you care for others? How much are you practicing generosity? How much are you being brave? How much are you humbling yourself? So I pray that we can go towards a society where we can really take care from each other and we can live uh, not just from nature or to get on with nature, so now we can live as nature. So this is my prayer. My prayer is that we take this crisis as an opportunity for, new for a new foundation. But well, I know that it's a very ambitious prayer, but nothing is impossible to God. I hope by 2050, all young kids will understand the natural world better, I hope that we will be more sparing of the kinds of ways in which we mine and dig and burn and eat. I hope that we'll be taking more advantage of the sciences to use those wonders that we can achieve. And I hope we'll be more tolerant and compassionate and kind to each other, particularly tolerant and kind and compassionate to people who don't look like us or sound like us. The possibility of wholeness, 
of becoming whole, which is healing and not curing, right? Which takes all of our vulnerability in and the fact that we need each other and that we must belong and that we must uh, share <laughs> and that we learn through what goes wrong, that we are not perfect. We are imperfect and we are vulnerable and, and precisely in that state, we can be healing and we can be whole. Unless as a species, humanity is able to fall in love with the earth again, we won't be able to find a way through this crisis. If I haven't fallen in love with the earth yet, then how can I do that? How can I make time for that in my week? How can I make that part of living well this lifetime? And so, dear listeners, what is your story about your relationship with nature? How has that changed throughout your life? Do you want to continue evolving it? And if so, in what direction? And once you change your story, what will that allow you to do? A huge thanks to our guests for their pearls of wisdom. Shia Bastida, Peter Frankopan, Janine Benias, Krista Tippett, Laila June Johnson, Augusto Sampini, Wolf Martinez, Arturo Escobar, Kate Rayworth, Gunhild Stordalen, Kingsmill Bond, and Bayo Acumulate. And of course, a very special thanks to you, uh, Isabel, my wonderful, wonderful co-host. Thank you so, so much, Isabel Cabellier. Thank you, Cristiana. And let's leave listeners with our youngest guest. One last voice shining light on the future we are learning to imagine through the stories we tell ourselves. It's kind of a, a poem to myself and to the world. Think of yourself as a tree with long and strong roots that connect you with the womb of the earth. Roots that absorb groundwater, enrich you every day, and give you the strength to stand tall. Picture yourself with a strong trunk, a strong core, an unshakable center. That is the source of your vitality, your love, your fire. You have strong and long branches that can reach anything, anywhere. With those branches you can give and receive, you can hold and hug, you can give shelter. Picture your leaves absorbing the sun, growing full and green, changing with each season, adapting, growing, falling, decaying, and growing again. Picture the fruits you give, the seeds they have, that will grow into strong trees that will connect with the womb of the earth and the heart of the sky. Receive the rain, the wind, the sun, receive and give. Give your fruits, your shelter, your seeds. Be unshakable, be adaptable, be strong, be loving. But most of all, be yourself. Take your space, take your time. Respect time, things take time. Change takes time, but change will come.